Welcome to the Harvard Data Science Review Podcast. I'm Liberty Vittert, and today my co-host Shali Meng and I are discussing the increasing role of data science in the diagnosis and treatment of mental health disorders. Our guests are Margarita Alegria, Chief of the Disparities Research Unit at MGH and Professor at Harvard Medical School, and Robert Gibbons, Professor of Biostatistics at the Department of Medicine, Public Health, and Psychiatry at the University of Chicago. He is also the author of Medications and Suicide, High-Dimensional Empirical-Based Screening for HDSR. I really wanted to start by asking you, Rob, you know, thanks so much for your fantastic article on medication and suicide and this sort of really interesting statistical concept for HDSR. But how can work like yours and more broadly data science help with these sorts of questions like I read in the news recently, that suicide and mental health disorders among active and veteran military are almost double that of the general population? Liberty, great question. You know, suicide is a nationally and internationally important problem. We lose more than 40,000 people a year to death by suicide. More people died by suicide during the Vietnam War than died in combat. More people died by suicide during the HIV AIDS epidemic than died from the disease. There's so much we don't know about the determinants of suicide risk. Our paper asked the question of whether we could identify drugs that were associated with increased risk of suicide. And if there were also drugs out there that were associated with decreases in the risk of suicide. And a novel feature of the model and of our analysis is that we look at all drugs on the market simultaneously. So there may be certain drugs that actually are associated with decreases in suicide risk, and that may allow us to learn about causal mechanisms in further studies. To do this, we needed big data, and we applied our model to the analysis of medical claims data for over 150 million people who have private health insurance. And the results were really, really interesting. We found that widely prescribed drugs like alprazolam, Xanax, were associated with large increases in suicide risk. These are attempts and in some cases completion. However, the vitamin folic acid was associated with significant decreases in suicide risk. And we have ideas of why that might be. And with respect to your observation about the military and veterans, we actually are working very closely with our colleagues in the Veterans Administration to follow up on some of the leads generated in our paper. The VA has a wealth of data, and in particular, they include data on suicide fatalities, which in general, you can't get in medical claims data. Wait, sorry, what do you mean you can't get it in medical claims? So it's, it's like not part of the insurance company, or what do you mean? It's really interesting. The National Death Index costs a lot of money to link to. And in medical claims data, if you make a suicide attempt and you end up in the hospital, it generates a claim. If you die by suicide and you're not in the hospital, it doesn't generate a claim. So the only way you could determine whether or not someone died by suicide is to link those claims data to the National Death Index. 
But of oh, course, wow. the claims data are de-identified. So you have no idea who the person who is. Who the person is. To, to link. So it's a huge disadvantage of the kinds of claims data that we have here in the United States, which is one of the reasons why we reach out in many cases to our colleagues at the Karolinska Institute in Sweden, where they have a national registry and information about suicide completion is available. Turns out the VA actually has all of the suicide mortality data. So it's a wonderful and untapped resource. The VA has all of this data and Sweden has all of this data, but the US as a whole clearly doesn't have this data. Is that sort of the argument for this idea of an E, like an electronic record of your health data, like almost sort of creating a national database? One of the problems with the electronic health record, which is, you know, generated a tremendous amount of interest, is that those data are of very uneven quality. So we understand in a medical claims data that somebody filled a prescription for a particular drug on a particular date. What we find in the electronic health record in some cases is excellent. And in many cases, it's very, very poor. The beauty of the Scandinavian systems is they have a prospective defined um, registry of all kinds of information, health-related information on people, you know, from birth to death. You know, in, in the sense of, you know, sort of this idea of almost a national registry or the government controlling this, how how does your research really help inform policy? How does it how does it help lawmakers or how does it help like inform policy that would affect every one of us? I think it helps to inform policy because a lot of the work we do is testing to see whether certain policies are working or not working. We're trying to work with policymakers on the importance of having really good public health data that not only helps you at the end, but actually helps you in preventing things because you're seeing things you know, on the pipeline. We do a lot of screenings for suicidality and we're finding you know, very high rates, especially among youth, which is to us very concerning. Let me jump in about, about this whole issue of policy from a data science perspective, because it's such an important point that you raise. We as statisticians and as data scientists have a responsibility to work on important problems that are gonna change the world. It's not an accident that Maggie and I are interested in suicide and mental health. These are important world-changing problems. We as statisticians and data scientists have the tools and training to draw causal inferences from complex collages of controlled and observational studies. When you say causal inference, what do you mean? Always what we're looking for is the truth. We want to know whether or not a particular drug exposure, as an example, causes suicide or prevents suicide. But when we analyze observational study, we're typically limited to being able to derive associations. So when I talk about our Harvard Data Science Review paper, I'm careful to indicate that we see associations of a particular drug with an increased risk. I'm not saying that it causes it. There may be other alternative explanations, but policymakers rarely have this kind of training and understanding. We need to take a seat at that table. In fact, 
Lincoln Moses from Stanford University, he started biostatistics at Stanford University, called for this in his landmark paper in 1986 on the practice of statistics in the New England Journal of Medicine. And every, every data scientist should read that paper because he calls for the role of statisticians to take a, a seat at the table of how we make policy in this country. Tying down to what Rob is saying, it's really we we have done an awful job of communicating with policymakers. So on the one hand, we have a lot of information. We collect tons of information that need to be shared. On the other hand, we have really not been greatly trained to collaborate with policymakers. And it's now that we are understanding the importance of being at the table and being able to communicate not only to policymakers for the public, uh, what are we finding in our studies that they need to you know, attend to? Well, Maggie, let me follow up on that. In fact, the question of uh, communication is so important. And I want to talk a little bit about the notion, say, major disorders, you know, depressions, right? Because in the general public, we know that's a kind of a mental disease, but we have no idea how that was diagnosed, how that was measured. Uh, you may remember that when I was working with you, uh, that great time we had together, I was, you know, both fascinated and, and frankly, a little bit frustrated about uh, not knowing the, how those things were defined because the major disorder is not something that you, you do a blood test and the doctor tell you you have major disorder. So if you can uh, tell both the broad audience as well as the kind of data science community about even how do you measure those things, diagnose those things will be uh, very interesting. Absolutely. And I mean, there, there has been great measures that have been done. And there's the Diagnostic Statistical Manual of Psychiatric Disorders that has like what they call essential symptoms, which are if you have this condition, you would show the symptoms. And that's one of the things why there's such great measures that have been done to capture through a very small group sometimes of symptoms, whether people have psychiatric disorder or not. And this is an area where not only with you, Shelley, but with Rob, we have been working is culture and context matters in how you report those symptoms. And so we have found in work we have been doing over you know, the last 15 years, how your ethnicity, race, your age, your gender do matter for how you report certain symptoms. And this is where the beauty of the work that Rob is doing with adaptive testing and being able to identify whether the items or the questions we have work the same for all groups or not is so critical to this area. That's a really uh, fascinating. And Rob, how do you uh, take into account all these in your computerized adaptive test. Let me give you an analogy to explain the paradigm shift. Okay. Imagine that you had a thousand item mathematics test, ranging from difficulty from simple arithmetic to advanced calculus. Mm -hmm. And you had two examinees, a fourth grader and one of my graduate students in statistics at the University of Chicago. Now I could go through the arduous task of giving each of them that thousand item test and I'd get a good estimate of their ability assuming they sat still long enough to take the test, but I'd really be wasting their time. I'd be asking calculus questions of a fourth grader, and I'd be asking arithmetic questions of one of my graduate students. Doesn't make mm -hmm. sense. Mm -hmm. The psychiatric approach would be to come up with a short form test like Maggie 
described. The PHQ-2, it's a two-item test for major depressive disorder. Everybody gets the same two questions. So let's say I did that in the mathematics test. I had a test with only two items, an arithmetic item and a calculus item. The fourth grader would get the arithmetic question right. The graduate student would get them both right. And I come to the ridiculous conclusion that my graduate student had twice the mathematical ability of a fourth grader. Now I might tell them that sometimes, but I really don't mean it. A better approach would have been to start with an algebra item. And when the child got it wrong, move to simpler arithmetic questions. And when the graduate student got it right, move to more complex calculus and real analysis questions. That is what adaptive testing is. And the Educational Testing Service has been doing it for 30 years. The GRE, as an example, was a cat. But these are for unidimensional constructs. Depression is not unidimensional. It's a complex trait that's, you know, has dimensions of mood disorder and cognitive impairment and somatization. And in order to preserve that multidimensionality, we have to extend the idea of computerized adaptive testing to multidimensional models, item response theory models. And that's what we've done. And the beauty of it is we can now, instead of using those two items, as Maggie has said, that bring in all kinds of potential bias and really don't allow us to characterize the severity of an illness or even the presence of an illness, we can have thousands of items, enormous banks of items that we adaptively administer to a given individual based on their level of severity. We don't know their level of severity, but we learn it adaptively based on their responses to that point in the interview. That's what adaptive testing is. And what are the applications of this? We've done 85,000 students at UCLA over the last four years and identified those with depression, anxiety, and suicide risk all remotely. Those with mild to moderate severity get internet-based cognitive behavior therapy and peer counseling support. Those with severe depression or anxiety or suicide risk get traditional face-to-face -face psychotherapy or pharmacotherapy. All of this is done remotely. The project has been so successful in treating and identifying these, these students, treating these students that the state of California is now rolling this out to the 2.1 million students in the community college system, all enabled by this idea of adaptive testing for screening, who needs treatment and measurement-based care of how do we follow up and determine whether or not that treatment is successful. There are many other examples of this, but all of this can be done remotely in a person's home. So COVID has been a boom to this area. The pandemic has made this huge because we can administer these tests in or out of the clinic wherever people are on any internet capable device and track them and get help to them as needed. Are there major differences in mental health concepts from different cultures, different ethnicities, how we treat them? Um, and are we able to take that into account in our diagnosis tools to make sure they're culturally sensitive? Like, I mean, are there differences? You know, it's a great question that you're asking Liberty because it depends who you ask. And this I think has to do a lot with what people talk about positional hierarchy and actually work we have been doing with Rob and work that I have done with mentees of mine that are doing a lot more international work. We're finding a lot of the symptoms look the same, but there are some symptoms that are asked commonly 
that means something very different. Right. And if the clinician uses those very common symptoms, like being sad and blue, you might be going in the wrong direction. And so there's also issues about disclosure. It's not only the symptom itself. I also want to be more nuanced here because when people feel that they should be disclosing a symptom also matters liberty. What do you mean by that? What would be an example? For example, with pain, we know that Blacks are more likely to report pain at higher severity thresholds. And it doesn't mean that they don't have pain. It's just how how different ethnic racial groups in the context of their lives have been sort of socializing. These are social constructs. So it matters where you live, how you live. So for us, for example, I'm going to give you the example of uh, being tired. We found in work that we were doing with Rob, if you ask people, how much have you been tired? Latinos will report, yeah, they are tired and it's not tied to being sort of depressed. So that's a concept that tired, it's just not reported the same or cheerful. We don't have a concept exactly like cheerful in Spanish. We have something that is close to it, but it's not the same concept. And satisfied, are you satisfied with your life? Satisfied for us is satisfied with eating. So when you ask, are you satisfied with your life? People react very differently in Latino culture that they would in white culture. That's giving you an example of how different it could be. But one of the things that I guess I wanted to emphasize is this issue about how we have to be really careful in how we assess whether people have certain conditions or not. Because one of the things we learned from another study that we were doing was that clinicians, because they're very short on time, Mm -hmm. tend to ask only a few questions about the disorder and make a lot of uh, intuitive guesses of what the person has or doesn't have. Unfortunately, that's how we get into a lot of stereotypes and biases in terms of giving diagnosis that can sometimes be wrong. Uh, for populations. And this is an area that we have a lot of interest and in trying to make sure that the measures are equivalent across different cultural uh, groups. You know, it's sort of hard to ignore the elephant in the room when we're talking about mental health, given the current time that we are in with the pandemic and how, how much mental health has come into play as a question. One of the things I remember an enormous discussion about at the beginning of the pandemic was that there would be an increase in suicides because of it and because of the isolation. And I was reading, I can remember some article uh, last week, and it said that that hasn't happened, that we have not seen this increase in suicide, which shocked me because with the pandemic and the isolation, I, I mean, it makes, I can't fathom that there wasn't an increase. So, but it does seem like there's certainly been an increase in people having mental health disorders, but that there hasn't been an increase in suicide. Do you have any insight into why that is? Is the data showing us anything about that? Let me say that I'm seeing a lot of suicidal ideation. I'm not necessarily seeing a lot of suicidal completion because I think a lot of people are now able to connect. For example, I cannot tell you how many people were connecting to uh, services as a result of doing actually screening 
for suicidality? Remember, this is a process. And there are some people who, uh, these are very impulsive acts and the first suicidal thought leads to completion, but that's not typical. What we're seeing in the Veterans Administration in particular is that there is a progression from ideation to attempt to completion, but it's a long-term progression. Maggie is absolutely on target. Ideation rates are certainly increasing. My concern is whether or not we'll see a bolus of suicide completion over the next five years as a consequence of the the initiation of these kinds of behaviors. You know, I've been reading about at Johns Hopkins, they have sort of these new, it's for the, for the first time, these very new methods of treating really, really severe depression, um, where, where it's suicide ideations or suicide itself um, with psychedelics or the ketamine, you know, these sort of new therapies that in general to me, when someone says ketamine, I'm like, oh, well, that's a special K, that's a party drug or, uh, you know, psychedelics, that's a party drug. And so where does this sort of come in? Is there data supporting these, these new intervention methods? There has to be data. I mean, I'm not an expert in this area by any means. So there is some, uh, you know, pilot data that people were uh, showing to show that there is improvements uh, in, 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 in very small randomized trials. So this is why actually uh, there are several studies ongoing at Harvard that are doing, are testing uh, whether psychedelic drugs are are really improving or not. I think the jury is still out. I think, you know, like all of these trials, you have to balance the uh, benefits versus costs and what are the implications of, you know, the psychedelic uh, drugs long-term not just short term. And unfortunately, part of the issue is NIMH funds the studies for five years. So by the time you collect the data, do the intervention, analyze the intervention, you really don't have a lot of long-term data. So Mm -hmm. I think this is the sort of thing that you have to be careful and and look at the data long-term. So for the psychedelic drugs, I think we're still, you know, waiting to to see more. We participated in several studies of ketamine, and particularly with the Columbia group, uh, John Mann and Mike Grunebaum, where they've done one and now they're in the middle of a larger scale randomized controlled trial. And the results are very encouraging for very short term um, improvement in depression and suicidality, the kinds of things that you might want to treat in an emergency department where you have the person for a short period of time. It also is one of the areas where adaptive testing becomes so important because we don't ask the same questions over and over again. They're constantly changing. And because of that, we can assess people at very short intervals in time, every hour, every half hour during a ketamine infusion and see the effects immediately on depression and suicidality. So that's been a great illustration of the use of adaptive testing in a novel new area of application. There are also a recent report came out of the University of Chicago. Peter Nagel is the principal uh, investigator, the head of anesthesiology at the University of Chicago, using nitrous oxide, showing in again in a small study, these short-term benefits, the kinds of things, not necessarily you want for long-term treatment, but for something in the emergency department, these kinds of tools are really, really important. We did a study in the emergency department at the University of Chicago, where we screened for depression and anxiety and suicide risk. And I'll just tell you the suicide risk, 
part. There was a thousand people who came in for a non-psychiatric indication. 3%, 30 of those people had serious suicide risk. Not one of them was identified by the emergency department staff in the emergency room. Wait, so this was in the ER, a thousand people walk in the door and 30 people had suicide, serious, they were going to very, very possibly commit suicide. And this is excluding people who are coming in for a psychiatric indication. Somebody's coming in for a gunshot wound or a broken arm or, you know, diverticulitis. Wow. So the ability to identify those people rapidly in terms of measurement, and then the ability to provide a rapid treatment, assuming these studies continue to be positive using a drug like ketamine, would be tremendous advantages in terms of, you know, nipping in the bud that period of of really, really high risk. And then you'd go on to get treatment with something that's not one of these drugs. I leave that to the people who do that for their day. (laughs) Well, we always uh, leave a a kind of a tough question in the end. So I I want to ask either, I won't call it a fun question. There's nothing fun talking about mental health here, but I would say it's an important question. If you have a magic wand, like what would you wish? What's your wish to both either of you that from the data science community to to help this research for mental health disorders and suicide, you know, broadly, maybe Maggie, start with you. What's your wish here? I wish we had better ways of stratifying people Mm -hmm. by which are the questions that we should be asking different groups. So because, Mm -hmm. for example, I'm I'm now working in the area of uh, Alzheimer's and related dementia. And, you know, I'm, I'm very interested in how we're finding that you know, even in talking to people, uh, different ethnic racial groups, they feel that the way we're assessing it is very wrong. So one of the things I wish from data science is also to bring more the voice of people to how we collect the data that it's of importance to them, Mm -hmm. rather than importance to us. I think we are too distant from the types of data that people want to receive versus the ones we're collecting. So that would be my my request. Well, that's, uh, I want jumping that you touch on the probably the, the most important question in data science is how to measure what you want to measure. You know, how to ask the right question. But everything else is, is secondary. If you just collect the wrong data, ask the wrong question, you can do all kinds of fancy stuff. You're not going to get get it right. So I think you're 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 absolutely correct. And and I can see in this space how complicated it is because of different cultures, different uh, backgrounds. So, Rob, uh, what's your uh, wish? I think one of the greatest limitations of data science and big data is that the data were not collected for the purpose of the analyses that are typically performed. And Charlie, you've written so eloquently on this issue. So much of those data may be of very limited quality and compromised by retrospective assessments or medical claims that might grossly underestimate the actual prevalence of the events of interest. What I'd love to see is an attention to measurement. I'd love to see data scientists really take a greater interest in measurement and not just use what they're given. And if we could combine the lower quality or the event-related claims kind of data with prospective assessments of mental health constructs and suicide risk stratification that are afforded by adaptive testing kinds of technologies, then I think we can dramatically increase the data's value 
the precision of our estimates of treatment effects and help reduce bias due to confounding. Thank you very much. And I think that you again emphasize this incredibly important point. And I'm just thinking I can help to think this way that that uh, uh, they're probably, you know, not any area. I mean, all areas are important, but in here we're really talking about life and death and, and affect so many people to ask the right question, you know, doing the right measurement. It, it's really changed people's lives, saved people's lives. So I want to thank both of you again for your incredible work as well as for this uh, great podcast. And thank you. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you both so much. If you are feeling suicidal, thinking about hurting yourself, or concerned that someone you know may be in danger of hurting himself or herself, please call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-TALK, 1-800-273-8255. It is available 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and is staffed by certified crisis-responsible professionals. Thank you for listening to the Harvard Data Science Review Podcast. Take care.